Please stand as you are able for the reading of scripture. This is from Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all, all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Providence, and it's my great uh, joy and, and privilege to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, before we dive into our text, though, would you, uh, would you pray with me uh, real quick? Father, your word tells us that from your speech, uh, the heavens were made. Uh, from, uh, from your words, earth was formed. And so we ask that uh, your words, your speech would have the same effect on us this morning, that, you, that your, your words would shape and form us into the image of your Son. And Father, I must confess that my words are unable to do that. They are feeble things, mere meditations. And so, Father, would you take them, would you infuse them with your power uh, so that you and you alone would be glorified. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series on the names and titles given to Jesus around his birth, and it has caused me to ask questions that I typically would not ask. 
uh, such as, I wonder who has the longest title in the world? And in case you're wondering, that, that honor goes to Prince Philip, who was Queen Elizabeth's husband. Uh, he was his royal highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl, Earl of Marineth, Baron of Greenwich, Royal Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Extra Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Member of the Order of Merit, Grand Master, and First and Principal Knight, Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Knight of the Order of Australia, Additional Member of the Order of New Zealand, Extra Companion of the Queen's Surface Order, Royal Chief of the Order of Lagahoo, Extraordinary Companion of the Order of Canada, Extraordinary Commander of the Order of Military Merit, Lord of Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, Privy Councilor of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada, Personal Aide de Camp to Her Majesty, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdoms. Now, in case you, uh, you weren't counting, his title was 134 words long. And you're probably wondering, Caleb, why did you just read all of that? Uh, it's because I needed you to experience something about titles. That titles don't just say something, they also do something. That, that when I was reading Prince Philip's title, I was saying something, I was telling you who he was. But as I was reading his title, it was also supposed to be doing something to you. His title elevates him in our minds. His titles are supposed to cause us to show greater respect to him than we might show to our fellow man. See, see titles don't just tell us who a person is. They also tell us how we ought to respond to them. And with that in mind, we're going to look at one of the titles given to Jesus at his birth. When the angels announced Jesus' arrival to the shepherds, they declared that Jesus is the Lord, uh, which is a title given to Jesus over 600 times in the New Testament. But what I want us to figure out this morning is what exactly does that tell us about Jesus, and what does it mean for us and the way we live? And as we journey toward that answer, we're going to make three stops from our text. I want us to be crystal clear on what the angels mean when they say that Jesus is Lord, what the implication of Jesus being Lord is, and then how do we come to live under his lordship? Now, like most things, there are two extremes uh, that we can fall into when we talk about Jesus' title as Lord. Uh, on the one hand, we, we could trivialize it. Uh, we could put Lord in the same bucket as Mr. or Sir. That, that it's, a, it's a polite way to address someone, but, but it really doesn't hold much weight or significance. And that would be the correct way to think about it if the title of Lord was purchased off of Groupon for $9.99, which if you're still looking for a Christmas present, it's a great idea. Uh, but that's clearly not what happened with Jesus. And so on the one hand, we don't want to trivialize Jesus' title as Lord, but on the other hand, we don't want to simply deify it either. And, and that's typically our bent. The, the, when we hear the phrase, Jesus is Lord, our, our minds translate that into Jesus is God. And, and part of the reason we think that way is because when we read the Old Testament, we read that God introduces himself as Yahweh, or I am. And, and the way that, that our translation captures that name is the Lord. 
And so we think to ourselves, if, if Lord means God in the Old Testament, then it must mean God in the New Testament. So if Jesus is Lord, it must, they must be saying Jesus is God. And yes, Jesus is God. And one of the ways that he asserts his divinity is by claiming God's covenant name for himself. Uh, like in, um, in John 8, where, where he says that before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God. But when Jesus is called Lord, uh, it's a title. It, it's not a name. And so when the angels and later the apostles call Jesus Lord, they aren't simply saying that he's God, though he is. What they're trying to do is draw our attention to something specific about Jesus, that he is the one who has authority. Uh, that is, that's the basic meaning of Lord in the first century. It refers to one who has authority. And so if someone called you Lord, it meant that they thought you were able to, to resolve or to deal with whatever situation or problem was facing them. Uh, that's why when some people come to Jesus and ask for miraculous intervention, they call him Lord. They are declaring that Jesus had the authority to address the problem at hand. And so it's worth asking, what does Jesus have authority to do? What situation is he capable of dealing with? Now, now we would be right to say, well, all the situations, because as Matthew 28, 18 tells us, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. But, but notice that the angels don't draw attention to that. Instead, they, they focus on something specific that night. When they announce this newborn Lord, they say that he has authority, according to verse 14, to bring peace to men. And peace is something that is, is sorely needed in our world, isn't it? Uh, I mean, we, we all long for peace uh, in our schools, in our homes, in our country, in our relationships. And what we typically mean by that is an absence of chaos and conflict. We, we want school shootings to come to an end. Uh, we, we pray for the conflict and chaos and carnage or in the Middle East to cease. We, we hope that, that this year's holiday get-together will be drama-free. And, and when the Bible talks about peace, it doesn't mean less than the absence of, of conflict and chaos, but it actually has a grander vision of peace in mind. Uh, when the Bible talks about peace or shalom, it's, it means an absence of conflict and a state of, of wholeness or completeness. And that's, that's actually what we want, as, as uh, anyone that's hosted Thanksgiving can show us. Now, uh, if, if you are the person who is in charge of hosting Thanksgiving, may I just say a hearty thank you on behalf of all of us, because that is a tremendous undertaking. I mean, you start prepping 24, maybe 48 hours uh, before the dinner. You're trying to figure out where everything's going to go. Where's everyone going to sit? How do I make sure that nothing gets burnt? And then your home gets invaded by a bunch of people, and it's just utter chaos. And, and my guess is that at some point, you, you, just, you wish to yourself for some peace. And, and eventually, eventually, peace does come, but I want you to think about when it does finally show up. Uh, it, it's not whenever everyone walks out the door. Uh, no, it, it's not until everyone walks out the door and the leftovers are packed up 
everything is put away, and the house is back in order. Then and only then is there peace. See, it's not until the house is restored to wholeness, where everything is set right, that there is peace. And that's, that's what we want for our lives. We want more than the absence of conflict. There, there is something in us that, that is missing. We, we sense this incompleteness to our lives, and, and we are searching for that thing that will put everything right, that will bring real flourishing to our lives. And what the angels declared to the shepherds that night is that this babe, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, he is the Lord that can bring shalom to men. That's what they mean when they say that Jesus is Lord, that he has the authority to bring peace on earth. But, but remember, titles, they don't just say something, they also do something. In the first century, to say that Jesus is Lord also did something to you. It, it transferred you and your loyalty from Caesar to Jesus. To, to declare that Jesus was Lord meant that you, you were unconditionally obeying him instead of Caesar. Uh, in other words, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Now, I don't want to assume that, that you all think about the Roman Empire as much as TikTok says that you do. Uh, so, so let me explain why, why this profession was such a volatile and, and political statement. So as, as the opening of our text tells us, the, the Roman emperor at the birth of Jesus was Caesar Augustus. And Augustus was able to transform the Roman Republic into an empire, and, and through Rome's impressive military might, he was able to usher in Pax Romana, or, or Roman peace. And as head of the empire and the bringer of peace, he declared that he was the Lord of the world, that under his authority, people could experience shalom, the, the wholeness they were longing for. All that he asked in return was your complete and utter loyalty. And so to declare that Jesus is Lord was a rejection of Caesar's authority and his ability. It was a declaration that Caesar could not bring about a flourishing life, and you were transferring your allegiance to someone who could. See, to say Jesus was Lord wasn't a theoretical statement. It wasn't just something you said. If you made that declaration, it meant that he was your functional Lord, and your life was now to be lived in line with his decrees. If my life is a decent sample case for us, uh, uniting theory and practice here can be very difficult. I think many of us would heartily say that Jesus is the Lord of my life, and yet at times uh, we still live like Caesar is our functional Lord, uh, that, that he's the one that will actually bring about shalom in our lives. Now, now, when I say Caesar, I, I don't mean a political ruler per se. Uh, I'm using Caesar as a, a placeholder for whatever thing other than Jesus we believe will bring peace to our lives. Uh, so let, let me give you a few examples of Caesar, how, how a functional Lord can slip into your life. Uh, for, for some, Caesar can be a, a political figure or a political institution. Uh, you know, as we get closer to November, we're going to hear more and more people talk about how this political candidate or that political institution can bring about Pax Americana, and therefore they deserve our vote and our loyalty. And that's lordship language. 
They're, they're claiming that this person or that party has the authority to bring about true flourishing should we just submit ourselves to their governing. Caesar, Caesar could also be, could be money. Uh, you know, money seems to be able to resolve a lot of chaos and conflict in our lives, doesn't it? Your, your water heater breaks and throws your life into chaos? Throw some money at it. That'll solve the problem. Uh, is there some discord between you and your spouse or maybe you and your kids? Well, money can deal with that either by purchasing something to absolve the conflict or it can help you escape the conflict altogether. You know, even, even our spouses can become Caesar to us. Uh, if you're married, I want you to think back to when you were dating. If you aren't married, uh, I want you to think about what you're looking for in the person you would marry. How do you speak about them? How, how, how would you describe them? Or you might say something like this, I'm looking for my missing piece. Or, or I have found someone who completes me. Behind those romantic overtones is a confession. We're looking for Caesar. We're looking for someone who will bring shalom, who will bring wholeness to our lives. And we could list many more Caesars, but I think you get the point. There can be a real difference between our professed Lord and our functional one. It is possible to state that Jesus is Lord of my life and yet live like he's not. And the way, the way that Caesar acts in our text shows us how to identify what the functional Lord of our life is. Notice what Caesar is doing here. Uh, in verse 1, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, we, we typically hear the opening of, of this text as just some historical context, that it's, it's proof that Jesus was a real historical figure. But, but think about what Caesar is doing to the people by decreeing that a census be taken. He's, he's demanding that everyone drop what they're doing, return to the place of their birth, and pay up. He doesn't care how far you have to travel, or, or if this is a good time for you, or if money is tight right now. He is Caesar. He's your Lord. And you have no choice but to do what he says. And that's how you, you, you identify what your functional Lord is. You look at what can call for a census in your life. What in your life demands that you reorganize your schedule to accommodate it? What in your life demands your financial support and you feel like you must comply even at the expense of other things? What in your life dictates your life? That's Caesar. And that is why either Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. You can't have it both ways. You can't serve more than one Lord because they are going to make competing demands of you. You will either hate the one and love the other, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And I need you to know that Caesar, whatever Caesar is in your life, is not worthy of being the Lord of your life. Uh, let, me, let me give you a somewhat trivial example from my life that, that illustrates why. Uh, so it was about, uh, around this time, about 20 years ago, this company I had never heard of, it was called Apple, they, uh, they released this thing called the iPod Shuffle, which, get this, could hold 240 songs. I know, my mind was blown as well. Uh, and, and I wanted one so bad. 
Like every, every time we went to the store, I would stop and stare at it. Uh, I pre-built all my playlists. I made sure that my parents knew that if I only got one thing for Christmas, all I wanted was an iPod. And sure enough, I, I got an MP3 for, player for Christmas, and I was over the moon. I was filled with joy and contentment. Everything was perfect and right in the world. Until three days later, I was sitting in the living room, staring at my MP3 player, and I was feeling utterly empty and wondering, what in the world just happened? Where, where did all the completeness go? Here's what happened. Consumerism had become Caesar in my life. It had promised that if I made it my functional Lord, if I put my hopes, my dreams, and my parents' dollars into it, then it would make my life whole. But all it did was leave me dried up. And, and that's what happens when we look to Caesar to bring about peace. Uh, as one first century historian put it, the Romans, they ransack the world, and afterwards, when all the land has been laid waste by their pillaging, they, they scour the sea, they, they plunder, they murder, they rape in the name of their so-called empire. And when they have made a desert, they call it peace. When they have made a desert, then they call it peace. See, Caesar will bleed you dry. Caesar will make demands of you. It will take and take from you. It will subjugate you, claiming that it's the only way to bring peace into your life. But when it's finally time to pay up, it gives you nothing but a desert, nothing but a barren life. And maybe, maybe you've experienced that already, that you've given yourself to a person or a company or an object, that you have said in your heart to something, oh, you can bring me peace. You can bring that wholeness that I'm longing for. And so you give yourself in service to Caesar, and it fails to bring the shalom into your life that you're looking for. But I am here to tell you today that you can have peace, that you can find the shalom you're looking for in Jesus. He's the only Lord who's able to bring about flourishing in your life if you would just come under his authority and submit your life to him. And yet, even as I, I say those words, uh, there is something inside of us that, that struggles against it, something that, that, that pushes back, something that, that drives us to join in with the Jews at Jesus' trial, declaring, we have no Lord but Caesar. Why is that? Why do we functionally reject the one who can bring shalom into our lives? It's because of how we view living under his lordship. I think the opening words of Psalms 2 helpfully articulate our view of Jesus' lordship. Uh, there, the psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. See, like the, the kings and the rulers, our, our default position is to resist God's lordship over us because we view it as bondage. Well, we don't see God as the provider of peace. We see him as the preventer of it. Uh, this is why everything falls apart in Genesis. There we read how God exercises his lordship. He, he creates all things, and at the end of the process, he declares that it is very good. Creation 
was at peace. Everything was whole and complete under God's authority. And God created Adam and Eve to come under his lordship and experience this shalom for themselves, which is why he gives them that command in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. In it, he's saying to them, submit to me. Trust that under my lordship, I have provided everything you need to flourish and be whole. Adam and Eve, however, they rejected his lordship. They, they concluded that God was withholding shalom from them. They decided that, that if, they could just, if they could just get out from underneath his lordship, then they would know true flourishing. And so they ate from the tree. They, they rejected his lordship over them, ultimately because they didn't trust him. They didn't think that they would flourish under his rule. And that is why we reject his lordship as well, whether that be a holistic rejection or, or just conditionally. See, anytime we sin, whether that be doing what we shouldn't or not doing what we should, we ultimately ignore his commands because we don't trust him. We don't think that, that living our life the way he commanded us, living under his authority, will cause us to experience shalom. And so just like Adam and Eve, we reject his lordship over us and we try to find peace somewhere else. But there is no peace. In fact, one of the ways that the Bible speaks about our condition is that we are in a, a state of hostility. That there is a fundamental ill will and mistrust of God's lordship and his intentions toward us. Uh, which means that, that we all are stuck in this vicious reality that we're unable to experience peace until we come under his lordship, but we're never going to come under his lordship until the hostility, the mistrust of God is dealt with. Which is why Jesus came. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 14, that Jesus is our peace and that he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And you can think of that dividing wall kind of like a, a two-sided drawbridge, like the, the Tower Bridge in London. Uh, on, on one side of the bridge, it has been raised because of what we were just talking about, that our, our mistrust of God's goodness as Lord. But the other side of the bridge is raised as well because we have rebelled against the cosmic Lord of the universe. In other words, we have committed treason. And the just punishment for treason is death. And so Paul, and yet Paul is saying here that somehow in his flesh, Jesus dealt with the hostility, that somehow he was able to lower both sides of the bridge so that we might have peace. Here's how he did that. On the one side, Jesus absorbed the penalty for our rebellion in his body on the tree. That, that he takes into himself the punishment, the rejection, the condemnation that's meant for me and you. And in so doing, he breaks down that side of the dividing wall. He, he lowers the God side of the drawbridge. Then on the other side, we have to still deal with the hostility, the, the mistrust of God and his rule. And to deal with that, we simply look to Jesus. And we see someone that though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. when, When we look at Jesus, he shows us the lengths that God is willing to go to ensure that we are whole. See, here's what Jesus, naked, bleeding, alone, and dying on the cross, tells us. It tells us that every would-be Lord will make demands of us, but only one Lord is willing to die for us. That that every would-be Lord, every Caesar in your life is going to make demands of you, but Jesus, Lord Jesus, came and he died for you so that you might know peace. He kills the hostility so that you and I might willingly and joyfully come under his lordship and there find shalom. See, that's, that's the thing about peace. Peace isn't a present that Jesus hands you when you accept him as your savior. Peace is not something that you can separate from him. Peace is only something that we experience when we live our life under his lordship. When Jesus is Lord of our lives, when we order ourselves in line with him and his commands, then and only then do we experience the shalom we long for. And so all I'm really trying to say this morning is that Jesus alone is Lord. He's the only one who's able to bring peace to our lives. He's the only one that can bring the wholeness that we're seeking. And so let me ask you, who is your Lord? Perhaps you are visiting with us this morning. Maybe you've come to support someone in the choir, or you came because it's the Christmas season, or maybe you have been coming for a very long time but you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You've never given your allegiance to him. Would you do that today? Romans 10 tells us that, that to come under his lordship begins with a declaration, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if, you, if you've never done that, would you today say that I'm putting all of my eggs in Jesus' basket? That I believe that Jesus is the only one who can deal with my hostility, my sin, and my brokenness and make me whole. But of course, as we've seen this morning, Jesus being Lord of our lives is more than a declaration. And so for for all of us who would say that Jesus is Lord of our lives, may I be so bold as to ask you, where is that lordship theoretical? Where is Jesus Lord of your life in name only? What parts of your life are you still holding out against his authority? Because Lord Jesus is not content with lip service. He demands 100% of us. But please, please do not just hear the demand. Also hear the message of peace that he preaches to you. That that he came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. Would you see the Lord of the universe humbled on the cross for you and be assured that his authority, coming under his authority, will bring peace to your life? Would you, would you lay that part of yourself that you have been withholding down before him? Would you behold Jesus this morning and say, since he gave all for me, I will give all to him. 
brothers and sisters, there, there is no greater news that the angels could have brought that night than that Jesus is Lord, that he's the one with authority and to bring peace. But that's only good news if he is your Lord. May we be a church that, that willingly and joyfully comes under the lordship of the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that you have all authority in heaven and earth. Father, we, we thank you that you are not simply able to resolve the conflict, to cease the chaos, but in you, you bring wholeness, completeness. Father, how we long for that. We confess that longing to you, and we also confess that we are prone to look to Caesar to provide it. Father, would you forgive us as we frequently turn to whatever Caesar may be in our life and say, you can bring us wholeness. You can bring us shalom. Would you forgive us of that, Father? Forgive us for, for rejecting, for redoubting your lordship over our lives. And Father, Father, would you help us to see Jesus, who is our peace? Would you help us to see him killing the hostility giving us the boldness to not just utter Jesus is Lord, but also to live it out. Father, would you let these words not just be a challenge that slips away in our minds as we watch the game, as we go Christmas shopping this afternoon, but Father, would you impress upon us the need to submit all to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.